buddy, I can't figure you out at all. You can be very nice, but like your mama said, there is an evil streak in you. There's an evil streak in everybody else. There ain't none in your daddy. I'm trying to stay positive, you know, there's all this good that I want to do, all these things I want to do, and then I just can't, you know, this is getting so frustrating. You do what you can, Amy. That's all you can do. I'm trapped. I feel like I don't have anything. <laughs> Let's see what this fucko is up to. Man. I kick him in the nuts so hard they go crawling up inside his brain for refuge. He goes down like a two-dollar whore, crying and shit, telling me how he's never done nothing but love me bullshit. What's the matter? Are you fucking people deaf? I said I want an abortion! Cheryl, if there's one thing I can teach you, it's how to find your best self. And when you do, how to hold on to it for dear life. And this is your best self. I'm trying. I'm sure that uh, everybody's noticed by now, with especially with the show title, that we are taking a different approach for this particular special edition bonus episode. And I know that possibly Patrick or myself will do a couple more of these in the future, like maybe three times a year we might, instead of uh, focusing on one director, we're going to examine an actor or an actress. And... I am very excited for this episode because it's the first time we're doing this, and I appreciate acting almost every bit as much as directing and screenwriting and editing. Um, I never fancied myself becoming an actor because when I was in drama class, uh, I was pretty terrible at improv, um, but I did manage to rock the scene of... um, the scene in From Dust Till Dawn where George Clooney confronts Quentin Tarantino about uh, killing that woman in the hotel room. So I was very proud of that moment. <laughs> is, there, is there any kind of video footage of this? No. Oh. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. I, I, I wish I could provide that for people. Yeah. Um, eventually I want to put together this little self-indulgent uh, documentary thing about what I've done. It's just really, It's just really like something I've been trying to work on just never got around to it but I'll include some really funny stuff in there including uh, a take on Pulp Fiction that pretty much any um, teenager with a camcorder after seeing Pulp Fiction wanted to make their own version of it so (laughs) yeah Um, I remember yeah I remember you mentioning that documentary on another episode a long time ago so I was wondering whatever happened to that (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the record took priority, and then I moved, and, you yeah. know, all this stuff sort of uh, interfered, but yeah. I also want to get um, a new interview with Patrick for it. I think it it just would be incomplete without his input. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, everybody, we're really excited. Um, let me first introduce, I'm sure you know the voice by now, because he's been on the show several times. He's returning guest and friend to the show, Bill Ackerman. Thank you for having me. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for being very patient in finally putting this thing together. It's, oh, no it's It's not easy to try and fit in viewings of an actor's work while watching a director's filmography. Yeah. Um, but we are about to embark on a wild journey <laughs> as we explore... Um, the work of the extremely talented Laura Dern. Um, and uh, we're going to definitely touch on some of our favorite performances. And, you know, I'm certain that uh, one in particular, especially since Patrick and I uh, 
just focused on it so heavily for the Alexander Payne uh, episode, we're definitely going to elaborate on Citizen Ruth. It's oh. something that I think is incredibly special for her. Um, but I also want to preface the conversation with, of course, an arbitrary list. Um, so, you know, where each of us is coming from in terms of like what we consider to be favorites. And it, it's very difficult because... Like I said, I love actors almost as much as directors and screenwriters. There have been instances in the past of me binge-watching all the movies starring my favorite actors and actresses, especially when I worked at a video store and got to see movies for free. Um, you know, I went through a f- phase of watching all the Sean Penn movies I could get my hands on, or, you know, whoever was exciting for me to watch at the time. And obviously now we do that with directors. Um, but I think um, I think it's just interesting to know... Um, you know, what we gravitate towards as favorites. You know, they're not, not necessarily the best actors and actresses, but just ones we get excited about when we see their name um, in the upcoming cast list. So I would like each of us to go sort of round table style here, okay. revealing our top five favorite actresses. And if you happen to have any other honorable mentions names that you can rattle off the top of your head, we'll do that afterwards. Okay. Yeah, I made a long list, more than five, but I did, I did, <laughs> no. I did narrow it down to five. <laughs> It's not easy. It's no. it's definitely not easy. Um, and I also will acknowledge that a lot of these actresses are still with us. And <laughs> I, uh, I I was struggling because, like, yeah, I, I've been watching some a lot of older films lately. Thankfully, um, to this podcast uh, for this podcast, and seeing a lot of actresses that have kind of uh, blown me away from earlier eras and. Uh, but I'm, I don't know if this list will change. Obviously, all lists change in my mind over time. But let's just get right to sure. it here. Uh, I'd like you to start with your number five. I'm uh, very curious to hear sure. this. Um, and this list could change five minutes from now. But as, I know. Of, as of right now, number five is Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, yeah, that's one of the that's one of the ones that is in my honorable mentions that I probably need to see even more work from her. Yeah, she's. I mean, she can do anything, I and mean, she's never bad in any film that I've seen. And she's someone that you can find really interesting, kind of racy pre-code films. I mean, you, you she did one of the definitive femme fatales in Double Indemnity. Oh yeah. Um, you have things like the Lady Eve for Preston Sturges. You have like Sam Fuller westerns. You have all sorts of variety and she just um even like the uh capra uh meet uh john doe you know that it's just uh, i mean you can't go wrong with her she's one of the best and it was either her or gene arthur from that period and i just you know stanwick has more range but i mean gene arthur's also a lot of fun but so that's my number five <laughs> yeah that's that's a tough call i i need to see some more barbara stanwick performances yeah um so number five and you know obviously people are going to probably even recognize um, even further here that one of my tastes is kind of vanilla, <laughs> um, but I'm or predictable. Like number five is Jodie Foster. Oh. Um, I know this is going to piss off previous guest Ren Brown because for some reason he hates the way she talks in the movie Contact, which <laughs> I don't understand. Um, I, I, <laughs> I honestly can't comprehend somebody like actively disliking Jodie Foster and pretty much anything. I mean, yeah. I didn't see Elysium. I keep hearing like how horrible she is in that movie, um, yeah. <laughs> which is might be why I'm staying away from it because I don't I don't want to see uh, a bad Jodie Foster performance. But 
Um, she was one of the first that I really responded to at a younger age because um, I saw pretty early on back to back um very different performances i mean obviously she was different ages but um seeing her as clarice starling and then pretty soon after that um i went out and rented taxi driver so seeing that kind of range i mean again she was different ages of course but still like i was completely impressed and she's a she was an actress whose career i wanted to follow like i was like i want to see whatever she does next including like um her directorial debut debut uh, little man tate which i really liked um around that same time i just thought that was a really good underrated movie yeah no, i mean she i mean both of those performances are i mean are iconic i mean it's yeah. re, it, you know respect um she's almost someone like meryl street that you could see people underrating her just because it's kind of a given that she's one of the greats that i think people don't have a sense of discovery because she has the um you know, she had the back-to-back Oscars for The Accused, which is kind of almost a forgotten film for her now. And obviously, Sansa Lambs, everyone loves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, you know, she doesn't work with a lot of kind of hip auteur directors, really. And I think that that also probably... I don't yeah, know. I think, that's I think, a good point. I, I, and I don't know why. I mean, she's powerful enough that she can do whatever she wants, so she doesn't really need to... I mean, you know, she doesn't need to build more credibility to Jodie Foster... <laughs> Um, so I don't know, uh, but yeah, I mean, she she was definitely in my in my honorable mention list. Um, but yeah, I can't I can't argue with uh, Jodie Foster. <laughs> yeah, I, I I keep thinking like I don't know if it was around Inside Man, but there seemed to be like just a little dip where people were like, mm, I don't know if I'm as excited to see a Jodie Foster performance. Um, I think like The Beaver was such a huge flop, and you know she put a lot of, into that movie in terms of, like, uh, covering mental illness and trying very (laughs) um, admirably to kind of redeem the career of Mel Gibson by showing him how vulnerable he could be and, you know, remind everybody he's a good actor. But um, that was a movie that I really thought, um, you know, she should have a resurgence with just based on what she tried to do but yeah well i think i think i think like public perception with her i think there was some frustration in some corners for her not coming out of the closet hmm. um there was even a documentary i saw in college called jody icon that was just about that really <laughs> yeah it was mm. just pe- basically like you know she was like this lesbian icon that wouldn't ever publicly come out hmm. and i think that and also sticking up for mel gibson were like kind of kind of, you know, non-PC kind of public relations moves on her part. I mean, everyone still respects her at the end of the day, but that could be, you know, another reason that people maybe underrate her for, like, reasons that have nothing to do with acting. (laughs) Yeah, I just, like like you said, I think it would be interesting if she worked with a Paul Thomas Anderson or an auteur sort of director at this point. Like, get, get get a role that someone like Julianne Moore is getting and maybe she'll sort of make a comeback of, of sorts. Yeah. I mean, I guess panic room maybe was one of the closest things she did to working with like a, a hot yeah. you know, rising director, but that's maybe one of the most conventional and uh, just like a kind of forgettable thriller on his resume. <laughs> Yeah, that along with her doing, like, Flight Plan or whatever that was. Yeah, well, she was also, like, a last-minute replacement for Nicole Kidman. Uh, 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 yes. Room, so that's, I don't know, but... Um, What's your number four? Number four, this was tricky, and this is not someone that I would have maybe put on my list a few years ago, but it's Tuesday Weld. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. 
someone I'm not that familiar with. Yeah, I think there's, you know what it was, hmm. was I got really interested in this film called Play It As It Lays, which has never come out on home video. Might have had a VHS release. It's Frank Perry film that he made after Last Summer and The Swimmer and Diary of a Mad Housewife. Um, and it's, it's almost kind of like the, um, what you would compare it to, but it's like that same kind of like alienated kind of seventies loner character that like Jack Nicholson would play, but like from a, from a female perspective. And, uh, that sounds good. Yeah. She had, um, you know, kind of gotten famous for the Dobie Gillis show as kind of like the blonde unattainable dream girl. But then she did this film called pretty poison, uh, with Anthony Perkins, where she plays kind Mm. of like this, uh, schoolgirl psychopath, and um, it's kind of an interesting cult movie. Uh, Noel Black made it, like, late 60s. And um, I think she started taking on these kind of, like, darker, you know, character roles. She shows up in things like um, Who Will Stop the Rain or uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. She doesn't have a lot of big leads, um, but she's, like, a really compelling supporting character because she has that kind of, like, kind of, like, blonde... Uh, not ice princess, but like kind of like almost like a, like someone that like Hitchcock would cast, but yeah. like but but kind of getting into the, these kind of like grim character roles. I don't know if you, I'm sure you remember um, the Michael Mann film uh, Thief. She has that great scene with uh, James Caan in the diner when they're just kind of oh, putting okay. their cards out on the table. And uh, it, I don't know. There's something really like anytime she shows up, uh, I just find it compelling, and she's kind of disappeared. I don't know that she does interviews and I don't, I can't remember the last thing that she was in. I mean, I think she might have some stray parts here and there, but I think that maybe adds a little bit of mystery to her. So that for some reason, I just gave her the edge because I, I, she's someone that I, everything I've seen, I've liked and I've always wanted to explore more. So that's my number four. Oh my goodness. Like there, I'm looking at her filmography and I think she could very well be, an actress where I don't know how I've missed her. And a lot of these movies are movies that I have on my list of, I have to watch these soon. Like who will stop the rain came up recently. Um, looking for Mr. Goodbar. Uh, I think I've seen once upon, yeah, I've seen once upon a time in America a long time ago. I just don't remember it that well. That's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I need to, that's the one I need, just need to rewatch period. Um, I'm definitely gonna check out pretty poison. It sounds right up my alley. I think you'll like it. Oh my God, she she's on the cover of one of my top ten favorite albums. Oh, I didn't know this. Isabel and Sebastian. Uh, Wait, no, 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 it's Matthew Matthew Sweet. That's what it is, Matthew Sweet. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, she's on the cover of Girlfriend. Yes, that I knew she was on the cover of something. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she's just been totally under my radar. I'm I'm really excited. I think. Uh, Pretty Poison is going to bump up on my queue. Yeah, the, one of the um, one of the film writers that really changed my life, along with Roger Ebert, was this guy named Danny Peary, who did the books Cult Movies uh, one at one two th- and three, and Guide for the Film Fanatic. And he did a, a book called Cult Movie Stars that had an interview <clears> on Tuesday Weld. I think she might have been like a cult actress more for baby boomers. Like she's not someone that has like a cult following that really. I think extend to like generation X and Y, but um, I don't know. It's just an interesting body of work. And I think 
I think she's due to, you know, be properly reassessed. I don't know if that will happen, if they ever really do a special edition of Played It, you know, Played As It Lays. Where Pretty Poison, that director died only maybe a year ago. Um, and it only has a commentary on the um, the British DVD, I guess, had it. But I don't know. I think I think you'd like uh, that film and, you know, check out more of her stuff. <laughs> I sure will. Um, my number four, again, is ridiculously predictable um <laughs> Catherine Hepburn oh wow. uh, I was um you know like I said it's uh, I was tempted to stick to more current actresses but uh, you cannot exclude her um from you know just just her incredible uh work early on and it's funny because like part of me was like ah, I could put Kate Blanchett on here I could I could I could yeah, yeah. but really Hepburn is just this class act. Um, every time she's on screen, I'm immediately drawn towards her, particularly her voice. Um, it's just very unique. It's, there's nothing like it. Um, she has this like tough girl swagger, kind of akin to Lauren Bacall, but yet there's just something really endearing and unique about what she brings to, to the table. I think something that really appeals to me about any actor is just good range and you know she started out doing a lot of different things but um, some of my favorite movies uh, um were include something like bringing up baby which is a screwball comedy and then uh, a long day's journey into night which is eugene o'neill drama and yeah. she does both uh beautifully so she's just you know one of those classic ladies that everybody knows and hopefully loves i mean some people could say like you know she's grating or some people might not be uh, into her at all, but yeah, my father um, wasn't <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah. I remember that, but uh, yeah, no, well, I, I like, I think that she projects like real intelligence in like every part I've seen. Her yes. In. So that's intelligence and confidence. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever see Sylvia Scarlet? Oh, I don't think so. Worth, worth a look. It's a uh, film with her where she's going in disguise as a little boy character hanging around with Cary Grant, but there's like an attraction brewing. It's kind of a little perverse when I say it out loud, but it's, uh, it's, huh. definitely, it's definitely one of the uh, sleepers from her Catherine Hepburn is box office poison uh, era. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you know that like until the Philadelphia story, she had like some, some years where... Uh, she was considered bad, uh, a bad risk to cast. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, you got uh, a guy who would be my top five favorite actors <laughs> in that movie, and they were in many movies together, so yeah. I'm going to have to see Sylvia Scarlet because, gosh, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, you can't go wrong with that duo. No, no, it's, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, okay, let me think. So number three... Uh, I went with Sissy Spacek. <laughs> Ooh, I think that might be Patrick's number one. And this this was going all the way back to one of our earliest episodes, so that could have changed by now. But yeah, um, honorable mention, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't see everything that she's in, but I mean, the number of great performances. I mean, it's I I don't think there was a better actress in the seventies. Um, you know, you have Badlands, you have Carrie, you have Three Women. Um, it's it's just uh, you know I mean it's easy to take her for granted because she's so good every time but I mean 
even things. I mean, she, she doesn't get a lot of leads anymore. I think the last thing I saw her as a lead in was in the bedroom. I mean, she might have done things since then. Oh yeah, yeah. she's really good in that. She's really good in everything. Um, yeah, coal, you know, coal miner's daughter, uh, of course, and missing and. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think of three women in that performance, and mm-hmm. it's just so mysterious. And I mean, Shelley Duvall is great as well. Like, you know, they're—I mean—they're both phenomenal in it. But uh, I think she she kind of brings it to that extra kind of eerie place that I really like about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, everyone knows Sissy Spacek and hopefully loves her. So I, <laughs> that's that's my number three. There's a new uh, Netflix show. That just premiered today. I want to say it's called Broadline or something. Bloodline? I can't. What is it? Bloodline. Bloodline. Yeah, that makes more sense. I think that's the title. I think you're correct. Uh, she's in that. Okay. So uh, I think there's a really good cast involved with that. Uh, Kyle Chandler, maybe a um, couple other really well-known people. And I'm hearing really great things about this show. It's from the creator of Damages. Okay. Um, so that's something I might check out in the immediate future because. Again, Sissy Spacek, I'm, I'm on board for sure. Yeah, well, they, they said it was like a dark family drama that, you know, was meant to be watched binge-watching, I think, on the AV oh, Club. Boy. So, I don't know, it sounds good so far. <laughs> yeah, well, number three, this is someone I, I know people might be a little surprised about because she hasn't been quite as consistent as I had hoped, hmm. uh, especially as of late, but... On the strength of one performance where she truly astonished me and made me go, okay, I am on board with whatever she does. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three for me is Naomi Watts. Oh. Um, it, it's tough because, like, again, I, it's really hard not to include someone who's probably been better in a lot of movies. Um, but um, in terms of an actress that I just immediately gravitated towards in Mulholland Drive, uh, oh, she was yeah. just a force of nature. And just, like, doing everything right. Um, and easily the reason to sit through something like 21 Grams, you know, yeah. even if that movie is just a lot of histrionics, she makes it completely believable. Yeah, um, yeah. And never seems to, like, call attention to, hey, I'm acting. Um, I I just, I think she's phenomenal. I, like, I, I put her in the same category. Um, well, I mean, a lot of people do love Nicole Kidman, and I can respect that. Yes. I I do like her, uh, especially in Eyes Wide Shut. But yeah. for me, um, Naomi Watts sort of fills that that the Australian actress that gets all the acclaim. I guess I I, I just there's something about her in everything that I've seen. Um, but again, I know that recently she hasn't been like even in the movies that came out last year. Birdman, she was fine. Um, the Bill Murray movie, St. Vincent, she was fine. But she hasn't really, like, given us another Mulholland Drive caliber performance. But yeah. I still consider her a favorite based yeah. on what she did to me in that in that role. Yeah, I just saw um, uh, While We're Young the other day, the Noah Baumbach film. Yes! And, uh, Can't wait. Yeah, she's really good in that. I mean, she, it's, good. It's, hard, it's hard to really top Mulholland Drive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's kind of um, it's unlikely that a lot of directors are going to give her a vehicle that good. Because I don't even know that David Lynch. I mean, that was a TV show that became a film. I don't know if David Lynch was given the budget for a feature then, if Naomi Watts would have even had that role. And I, I, I think you know the way casting works in Hollywood. I don't know that a lot of people are going to you know. I don't know. I mean, she. 
I take that. Well, let me think about that because I mean, she definitely still works with a lot of really good directors. I just, I, I think it's just an ageist kind of, um, you know, industry. And I just, I don't know. I mean, she's still young, but there's, you know, there's only so many people writing strong female parts. So, yeah, and. I mean, <laughs> someone who sort of started out in, like, you know, a lot of genre films or whatever, like, uh, I think she's really good in Tank Girl. Um, yeah, I've never seen and, that. And uh, I think she does really good um, as a comedy actress with I Heart Huckabees. I want to see her do more, um, you know, sort of goofy, over-the-top, screwball comedy type work as well. But, yeah. um, you know, stuff like fair game and I never bothered with Jay Edgar um, I mean I like the impossible but again I thought she was just fine I'm just I'm just holding out hope for some other fantastic Oscar caliber performance from her and I just uh, she is one of the main reasons why Mulholland Drive um, has become <laughs> one of my all time favorite movies and the more and more I watch it the more I just go God why why can't more performances be like this yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean it's. I mean she definitely uh, is you know phenomenal. It's a, it's probably the best that and Laura Dern and Inland Empire I think might be the two best performances of any of David Lynch's features. But, Agreed. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, my number my number two is uh, Isabel Huppert. Oh, good choice. <laughs> yeah, I think might be you know the actress to be reckoned. I she's not my number one, but yeah, she is the. Um, I mean, she she can do anything, and she's so intense in such a. <laughs> Speaking of I Heart Huckabees, <laughs> yeah, oh, she's hilarious in that. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I I know that Hal Hartley's a real big favorite on this podcast. I think she's really funny in uh, Amateur, the uh, Hal Hartley film. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then Absolutely. at the same time, that she can do something like The Piano Teacher mm-hmm. or um, Abuse of Weakness, which I, I I wish more people had seen that the Catherine Bryant mm-hmm. film from last year. Um, but she's, I mean, she's great, you know, going back to you know, the early seventies, um, with the Bertrand Blier film and then the, uh, things like Heaven's Gate, uh, the, uh, Cimino film. I mean, not every film that she's in is, you know, a masterpiece, but she's, she's always good and always interesting. And, uh, so yeah, that's, the, I've seen her twice in New York, uh, but I've never, I've never spoken to her, but she's. She's funny. Um, there's a good <laughs> interview with her uh, and John Waters from an event at Lincoln Center that you could probably still find on YouTube. That they go over a lot of di- her different uh, roles, including uh, Piano Teacher and Abuse of Weakness. That's uh, worth a look if you if you've seen those films and like them. But yeah, she's uh, my second choice. I need to see more from her as well. I will say I I'm familiar with her obviously from uh, the Michael Haneke movies. I think she's actually pretty great too and a more oh yeah. Um, yeah and a little side performance but i i uh i think i might have first seen her in wings of the dove i want to say is that the uh, no wait i'm trying to think of another movie uh. i thought she was in that because that was also later rem- i want to say remade with um uh helena bottom carter i'm trying to think of another movie that i probably saw her early on and that i it's it's escaping me right now, but yeah. I will definitely say that uh, the more I see of her, the more I'm like, yeah, I need to I need to 
uh, dive into her filmography a little bit more. She's she's just fearless in a way yeah, exactly. that is, is just really easy to uh, to. Oh, White uh, Materials, another great one. The, oh uh, God, yes, Claire of Denise. course. That's the one I was yeah. also thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I know that that uh, I yeah I remember that being discussed on your show. So yeah, that's I mean, she's just someone that she can handle any kind of material, like whether it be something like I Heart Huckabee's, which is like screwball or something really heavy. Um, you know, and it's, it's rare for actresses to really deliver, you know, to get roles that are really strong that many decades into their career. I think that's also because she's French, you know, and they, they don't really, uh, they still write compelling things for her, but yeah, that's, that's my second choice. What's yours? Oh boy. I think this one is the most obvious one of uh, the list thus far. Uh, it's Laura Dern. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about why, yeah. so I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay, you uh, can leave it at that. Yeah. Um, my number one is, I guess, kind of a sentimental favorite because she's the first actress that I really became a hardcore fan of where I rented every bad TV movie that she was in, every bad horror film that she did. Uh, I saw everything up until fairly late in her career, and I just haven't followed everything recently, but uh, I'm sure I will not be alone in seeing her Quentin Tarantino debut, and this is Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh my god! Um, yeah. She's like number six for me. <laughs> well, you know, at the time that... Um, the time that the film Georgia came out, there was this uh, God. Piece, on, piece on her, in, I think it was in Premiere Magazine, and they really kind of sold her as this character that was this blank slate that was almost like a void that took on the personalities of other people during the research uh, process, um, so that like when she did the phone sex worker in Shortcuts, she went and did phone sex uh, or like sat in on sessions and the woman that she sat with said that by the end of the day she even was doing her laugh kind of like Jennifer recently had absorbed her laugh it sounded kind of creepy in a really fascinating way because I was a teenage boy and so anything creepy is great and uh, <laughs> I think even with something like Hudsucker Proxy oh, you yeah. could um, you could see like her I mean, it's a very mannered performance, but the entire film is so mannered that it becomes kind of fascinating that you compare that to the rawness of something like Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is totally still mm. one of the most heartbreaking films, or even something like uh, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is like, you know, she brings this kind of melancholy to what, you know, you think you're getting a teen sex comedy, but here's this really <laughs> kind of sad beeline, you know, story with her. Um, you know, I mean, anything from Margot at the Wedding to, jeez, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think about Miami Blues. Uh, just so many interesting characters. Um, I always felt that she was underrated, even though she... Um, do you remember a, Do you remember a punk rock band called J Church from, like, the 90s? Mm, I don't think so. They were on... Uh, they had a record hmm. on Jade Tree at one point. Uh, they, they had a song about her. I think that's another thing. When I was into uh, a lot of punk rock, just knowing that... I think that was the first actress I knew of having a song written about her in a punk rock kind of context. But, um, yeah, so... What about Rosanna Arquette uh, yeah. from Toto? Oh, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, even... Um, What's, who, uh, yeah, I mean, Annette Funicello had a song written about her by Red Cross. I mean, there's other examples I didn't know about until later, but um, 
But yeah, Jennifer Jason Leigh is probably still my favorite. God, I think you can you can probably switch back and forth for my number five. <laughs> like, between Jodie Foster and Jennifer Jason Leigh as being probably uh, the earliest examples of actresses that I immediately uh, sought out, whatever they were in. I will say, like, lately, um, stuff like... The Jacket and The Machinist. There was, like, some of the mid-2000s work. I felt like directors didn't know what to do. Like, they just gave her kind of a supporting role where she sometimes played a doctor or she sometimes played a prostitute. And I was, like, kind of bummed out that they didn't give her more opportunities to shine. Um, But, like, I was... (laughs) And even in something like Greenberg, she stands out. I think she's really good in a very small role. But honestly... Um, as much as like I love all the actresses I've listed thus far, mm-hmm. Jennifer Jason Lee gives my all-time favorite performance ever in Georgia. Like, uh, yeah, there is a scene that when you see this movie, you will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> why she is one of the greatest actresses ever. Yeah, where she sings a Van Morrison song, and that's all I'm gonna say. Oh yeah, that is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. Yeah, I remember. Um, did you see it in the theater when it came out? Yeah, yeah. I actually saw that with my mom. Oh my god! <laughs> we saw a lot of movies together. Like, oh my god, you saw that with your mom? Oh boy! No, but like, I, uh, I that's that was to this day. Yeah, that 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 role is just something to uh, treasure. Really, yeah. uh, when uh, I can't believe it didn't get a lot of awards. Actually, the fact that Mary Winningham got a nomination for that film and Jennifer Jason Leigh didn't, I think, really kind of said everything that needs to be said about how Hollywood treats her. Because she's never gotten a nomination, as far as I know. Um, That's shocking. Yeah, well, she's. I mean, she was kind of. I don't want to say like a rebel because I mean she was working within the system, but I think she took on a lot of deliberately damaged or on you know not glamorous kind of characters in a way that you know it added to her street cred. But she never had well you know. But I mean, you think about like who comes next, like someone like Lily Taylor, who also you know delivered a lot of amazing performances with you know she was you know hot for a minute but then you know parker posey comes next or christina ricci comes next there's always like some indie it girl but yeah but then once they're over it's like that's you know they either they fall into like mom or wife parts (laughs) or zoe deschanel a new girl (laughs) or or, yeah or they they find work in television like yeah like laura dern did um, Absolutely. I will, um, I where she excelled, yes. Zoe Deschanel just went down the tubes for me. Yeah. I can't stand New Girl. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I, I will have to say that my favorite performance from any actress uh, who didn't make my li- my top five list, but is it's actually Isabella Johnny in Possession. Um, oh my god! I think that performance. I mean, that's. Yeah, that's a fire-breathing mess. Uh-huh. It's just... Yeah, I, 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 I've I, liked her in everything I've seen her in, and she has other really compelling parts, but I, I, I think the sheer volume of great parts... Um, I just had more to choose from with the other people on my list, but, I mean, if you want, like, the most intense performance from an actress, I, I mean, she's definitely a contender with Possession. I, I can't think of anyone that really is better than her in that. <laughs> yeah. Was she an Ishtar? Uh, I 
I it's been so long since I've seen it. She <laughs> yeah. might have been. I mean, she has like a very spotty Hollywood career. Like she was in that remake of Diabolique and things like that. But oh yeah. But if you ever see um, the story of Adele H, the Truffaut film, or uh, Herzog's uh, Nosferatu, the Vampire, hmm. uh, even that supporting part in uh, I know that you had um, strong reaction to the Tenant, the Roman Polanski film. Oh. Um, you know, she has like a lot of interesting kind of cult films on the resume. I think, I mean, she won, I think, yeah, she did win Best Actress at Cannes for Possession, which is funny because it came out here as a uh, grindhouse horror film missing about, what, 30, 40 minutes or something? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. um, Yeah. Yeah, that's... that's, Good choice. Yeah, great performance. Well, number one should come as no surprise, especially you, Bill. Oh, I know. Um, I think I know where it's coming. (laughs) And uh, oddly enough, I think her co-star um, in Blue Valentine would also be in my top five actors. But oh boy, everybody who knows me, you know, you know, you know who my number one is. Yeah, it, is it is uh, Michelle Williams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a big Dawson's Creek guy, um, and I really made this stupid prediction. And, like, having just, like, watched one season of Dawson's Creek when it was on TV, I was like, that Katie Holmes, she's going to go on to do some great work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Boy, have I never been more wrong. (laughs) Uh, I've enjoyed um, Michelle's uh, work post-Dawson's Creek quite a bit. But really, when uh, both the Baxter and Brokeback Mountain came out in the same year, that's, uh, that's what sold me. 100%. 100%. Like, I was smitten. <laughs> I uh, also just could not, like, again, range in both g- genres that I, I love. And for me, you have the sort of Williams trifecta of performances that are basically all I could want in a performance, uh, starting with Wendy and Lucy, mm-hmm. Blue Valentine, right, and, of course, Take This Waltz. <laughs> Which is a movie I mainly love because of her. Um, I do love the movie, as everybody who listens to this show knows, but I just, uh, I found her absolutely compelling in that film. But Blue Blue Valentine is something special. I watched that recently, um, around Valentine's Day, and um, every time I watch it, I go, I cannot believe all the heart and soul that goes into these two performances, and the fact that, like, they sort of live together... Um, Derek C. and Franz like really had them kind of become intimate, uh, short of you know sleeping together. They just sort of like lived in an apartment to sort of get the idea of what it's like to be together. So there's this comfort level when they finally get to shooting. Yeah, that is really on display when you watch that movie. Um, I just love everything that Michelle Williams has done. Um, even in smaller roles like Synecdoche, New York, she stands out. I just, I don't know. There's just everything. She does everything right for me in my in my book. So yeah, it's funny. I mean, because I I think Blue Valentine is her her best performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I like her in most things. I, I think um, a lot of my favorite films that she's in, she's really more of a supporting player, like The Station Agent or Synecdoche, New York. Um, yeah, Station Agent. Good call. Yeah, I mean that's probably. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, it's funny talking about her, uh, only because I, I, you know, I, I used to be friends with her, um, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I was already a fan of her work before I met her, and, but she didn't do anything that, 
I know that she was that crazy about until what is that? Me without you is the title, I think. The British, yes, the British yes, film. I think so. Mm-hmm. That's really where you see her kind of breaking into indie art house kind of roles. Yeah. Before that, she had like you know Halloween H two O and Dick and in the right. well, she was like a child actor, like Lassie and things like that. Um, <laughs> species. <laughs> oh yeah, but um, yeah, and I, I think. Um, I mean, I don't know that every... I mean, did, what did you think of the Vin Benders film that she did? Um, which one was that? Um, it, it came out as Land of Plenty. I, I know it was shot under another title, but it came out as Land of Plenty. I have not seen it yet, which is crazy, <laughs> since it's Vin Benders and Michelle Williams. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, she's... Yeah, I mean, she's definitely... Uh, I mean, I enjoy seeing her in anything that she's in, and uh, I, 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 I've seen, I think, every feature that she's done. I mean, she did some kind of forgettable erotic thriller kind of stuff at one point, and um, she's, yeah. in, like, she's in the worst Lucas Moodyson film, too, uh, Mammoth. Which I'm supposed to watch for the next episode, so I'm like, hmm. I'm not as excited about that movie as much as I like uh, Luke, Lucas Moodyson's films. But. Yeah, it's his, it's his weakest film. I mean, it, you almost don't even really... I mean, you should probably see it just because you like, you know, Michelle and the... Uh, if you're covering his work, it's interesting to see what he kind of bounced back from when he did uh, We Are the Best. But, sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, she's great in Bro- Brokeback Mountain. She's great in Shutter Island. She's great in... Uh, I never saw that Wizard of Oz thing that she did with Sam Raimi. Is that good? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a guilty pleasure. I would not... It's not nearly as good as I'd hoped, and everybody in it is kind of just there, for the most part, like just yeah. eye candy, you know? And it, it's a dumb movie. I just... I don't know. I just, I just, some, There's something about it, how loony it is, and there's crazy Sam Raimi camera work that I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm sold. Yeah. That's all it takes for me. She did a, uh, a Mike Lee play that I saw her in, in New York called Smelling, oh God. Smelling a Rat that she was really hilarious in. Um, she actually had done... Well, you probably already know all this, but she had done the uh, stage uh, version of Killer Joe. Um, Correct. And I didn't see that, but I saw her... In uh, Smelling a Rat, I saw her do the vagina monologues once, and I saw hmm. her uh, in, what is it, The Cherry Orchard? The uh, Oh, yeah, Chekhov. Yeah. Um, with another actress I half expected to be on your list, um, what's her name, uh, from uh, Tree of Life. Uh, oh, yeah, Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain, yeah. Right, right. Um, but, she, yeah, she can, she can deliver the goods on stage, too, if you ever get a chance to see her. Um, I don't know what she's. I didn't know what she's doing now, but uh, oh no, she's doing a film with Laura Dern uh, with uh, Kelly Reichard. <laughs> ah! Oh my god! Yeah, I think it's in production now. I can't handle that. I, oh, I'm yeah. gonna pass out. <laughs> <sighs> Take a deep breath. Okay. Yeah. Laura Dern, Michelle Williams, and a Kelly Reichard film. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I've already got my ticket. <laughs> Yeah, I, Does, it doesn't even have a title. I already got my ticket. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see that one. So, wow, that's crazy that my number one and two actresses are in uh, one of my new favorite directors. Yeah, I, that's I great. actually checked the listing to make sure you weren't somehow the producer or executive producer on that when I saw the yeah <laughs> right with it. But 
I guess it so. doesn't say what it's about yet. I, have, I, have I no don't idea know anything about happening. it now. Yeah, okay. I don't think it has a title yet. I just I knew that it was shooting in some small town. That's as much as I know. <laughs> hmm. Maybe it'll be Wendy and Lucy too. You know, I I'm not going to hazard a guess. I always forget. <laughs> like, well, because you never can really know with her. Like, I mean, I I don't. I mean, Meek's cut off. I would not have predicted <laughs> coming after Wendy and Lucy. So I don't really know. Like, <laughs> yeah. But um, what were uh, what were some of your uh, your runner up choices? Well, obviously Jennifer Jason Lee, like uh, you mentioned, Kate um, Blanchett, Amy Adams, Julianne Moore, Sissy Spacek, Barbara Stanwyck, Reese Witherspoon, oh, yeah. and uh, Carrie Mulligan, with <laughs> an honorable honorable mention to someone that. Um, has come up on the podcast a million times at this point, and I don't care what anybody has to say, but um, I am still sticking to this. I think Amber Tamlin is a good actress. Um, and that that really, a lot of that has to do with both her TV show and if you ever see this movie called Stephanie Daly, mm-hmm. co-starring Tilda Swinton, I think oh. people will be more inclined to understand why she's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Tilda Swinton actually could be a runner-up for my list. I Yeah, yeah. True, true. Very uh, true. Um, yeah, I had, um, among them, I had, I, I'm not going to do the same names that you had. Uh, Emily Watson was one. Oh, yeah. Um, Jennifer Connelly I like a lot. Uh, Penelope Cruz. Um Jessica Lange. I like Ozzy Argento a lot. Uh, Kate Winslet. Mm, uh, yeah. Katrin Cartledge. Uh, too too short a resume, but I mean, between Naked and Career Girls and Breaking the Waves, and <laughs> she was you know one of, you know one of the best of her generation. Uh, Maggie Chung, Ellen Burstyn, Julie Christie, Leave Ullman, um, Catherine Deneuve. And uh, among people that weren't the greatest actresses in the world, but I would watch anything they ever did, especially from the 70s, I would say Rainbow Smith, Claudia Jennings, Mink Stoll, and uh, Russ Meyer actress Haji. Uh, oh, man. You know, I, I think for the uh, B-movie exploitation films, I, mean, sure. I, I can't really – I would never turn down any films with them. Lynn Lowry is another one who was in uh, – the Crazies, the Romero film. She was in uh, Shivers, the Cronenberg film. You've probably seen her in something. I think her leg gets ripped off by a panther in the Paul Schrader Cat People remake. Oh yeah, um, that's memorable. Yes, she was. Uh, yeah, she was good. She's still. I mean, she's still good. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think uh, Frances McDormand also uh, is another one that gets easy to overlook or, or just reduces to Fargo. That's true. That's she's, a good. That's she's a good a call. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Again, someone who's really great at comedy and uh, most recently really uh, hit a home run with uh, Olive Kitteridge, the uh, HBO sort of miniseries. Oh, Did you see that? I've not seen it, no. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so well. It's one of her best performances, if not. It's definitely her best since Fargo, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I and Bill, Bill Murray does a supporting role. Oh, um there's a this is kind of a good cast. I can't remember. I want to. It might be Todd Wilkinson. Okay. Uh, I want to say, but yeah, no, it's it's some no, it's uh, Richard Jenkins. Okay. Richard Jenkins. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, those. You know, Ellen Burstyn. It, it's funny that you, you mentioned, mentioned that. This will sort of bring us almost full circle. Yeah. Uh, I just um, planned within the week, hopefully, 
to rewatch Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Oh, you can, yeah, which which famously has Laura Dern eating all the ice cream cones. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, it's something I haven't seen in a very long time. But um, Ellen Burstyn is definitely someone I think could sneak into my list. Another one who's sort of uh, impressed me <laughs> with, I mean, she's given a lot of great performances, but God, Requiem for a Dream? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, her career, I mean, you have things like Last Picture Show, which is my favorite yes. film. You have, uh, uh, what is it, uh, King of Marvin Gardens. You have, mm-hmm. um, of course, you have The Exorcist. Um, and there's actually a really interesting sleeper that she did that nobody knows about called Resurrection that I think it's 1980. Uh, I won't spoil what it's about, but... If you ever come across it, it's definitely compelling. And I went into it knowing nothing. And uh, but if you are starting to ever investigate Ellen Burstyn, that's that's the sleeper that you need to find. <laughs> I certainly will. Um, like I said, it is it's difficult to really do the binging on an actor or actress's <laughs> career at the same time when you're doing directors. But uh, that's something I. I would like to, you know, just occasionally bring up on the show, like, oh, I really love Ellen Burstyn, and I decided to watch this random movie of hers, and, um, you know, because there's just, there's so many reasons to watch a movie, and often it's like, well, this person's in it, Mm -hmm. so you got that going for it, even if it sucks. Like, there's some people who are trying to justify the gunman, um, like, oh, Sean Penn's in it, but dude... Sean Penn hasn't been in a good movie in a long time. Yeah. Uh, I, and that sucks, because he was one of my favorite actors growing up as a teenager. Yeah, I mean, he's he's almost kind of... He reminds me almost of Metallica, in that, like, <laughs> he was, like, really strong and intense, but never awarded properly. And then it's like they just started giving him awards for, like, not the definitive work, just because they were tired of getting shit for not giving him awards. Because it's like... Yeah. Mystic River... Uh, is not really. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. Like, yeah, but it's like Sweet and Lowdown is on there, and like that's that should have won him the award. I mean, that is probably my favorite performance of his. But uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, he's really he's good in at close range, like a oh, really yeah. good early performance from him. Oh yeah, I mean, um, Bad Boys. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, it's easy to underwrite him in Fast Time. There's one high just because that character is such a broad comic character and so much a pop culture thing, but he's really good in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's there's a long stretch of time when he was just knocking it out of the park every time, and he's someone that I wish would have a comeback, but I don't know if it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I really don't. If he's going to work with the director of Taken, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we'll I see. Mean, he, but, but he's Sean Penn, so it's like he doesn't have to have... The, the latter day Robert De Niro kind of career, like he could do. I mean, yeah. I mean, if if any Paul Thomas Anderson type wants to cast him, you know, I mean, it's just whether or not he agrees to do it. I mean, because I think he deep down just wants to be a director. I don't even know how much he wants to be an actor, but um, he hasn't gotten all Brando about it and actually given deliberately bad performances. But it's, uh, <laughs> but I think, and I think he was a pretty good. Uh, pretty good director especially the pledge i thought was really good i mean yeah that's another one i haven't seen since the theater and i remember really loving it and i haven't gone back but i should yeah i haven't gone back to his uh was it into the wild um since yeah. it came out but i remember thinking it was all right yeah i did i did too i'd like to see more work from him but yeah. let's get on yep. to the show yes. um 
Before we begin our conversation on Laura Dern, I want to play a clip from a movie that I consider to be very mediocre. But this scene kind of encapsulates why I think Laura Dern is a phenomenal talent. You don't make love to me anymore, you fuck me. I sat on those steps with Hank, and he held my hand, and he listened to me. He listened to me while I talked about this shitty marriage. And he told me he felt close to me. And I was happy when he said it. And I was happy when I made love to him. I was so goddamn happy for a minute. And then I thought of you. I just wanted to be here with you. And get us back. And be in this fucking bed in this house with my husband and my kids where I belong. That's a really admirable sentiment, Terry. Right now, I love you. Maybe more than I have for years. But I am angry. I am so fucking angry, Jack, way down. Because you set this fucking thing up, you set it up, and it happened. And I don't know what else is going to happen. Are you seeing him again? Christ, Jack, I don't know. What? So then it's over. Is that, is that what you're saying? What's wrong with you? I think making love is like smoking. It's, it's what? It's, it's a promise. You promised him you're going to see him again. I didn't, I didn't say anything. Opening my legs is a promise. And he didn't say anything either. He must have said something. You want details, huh? We drove around for a while. And I practically got off just from him touching me. You know what happened then? We parked and we fucked like crazy. You know what, Jack? I came before he did. And the second time, I was on top. And I looked in his face. I looked right in his eyes and I told him I loved him. That's enough, all right? Enough. You should be knocking my teeth out, but not you, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a guessing game. You'll you'll win a prize if you if you guess correctly. Is it? Uh, is it we don't live here anymore. Woohoo! Yeah. You win! <laughs> ding 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 ding. <laughs> Uh, she can take, um, like almost that movie to me is like, you know, uh, the, the writer director trying to do carnal knowledge essentially. Um, but she manages to elevate it in a way that few actresses can pull off. Um, oddly enough, Naomi Watts is in that same movie, but I think, she brings something to that role, especially like the reason why I chose that clip is you get to hear um, like her dynamics 
in terms of the way she delivers lines. Like, she can get really loud and intense, but when she whispers um, quietly like that, there's she conveys almost the same level of emotion. And she's done that for me going all the way back to when I f- first uh, became um, interested in her with Rambling Rose. Like, she, that's a, a kind of a loud character at times, but then she has these whispery, quiet moments with Robert Duvall or Lucas Haas. Um, so, I mean, she really does, um, so much sometimes without like, again, doing the thing that drives me nuts, uh, outright saying, look at me acting right now. Um, you know, as time goes on, I think she's just become a a force again to be reckoned with. Um, she might ha- she might have the occasional breakdown in the scene, but again, it never comes across to me as an actress trying to act for the sake of acting or to placate like an ego. But she comes across as somebody who has a need to express conflicted feelings that exist not only in the character she plays, but often in all of us, really. Yeah, I mean, that's I think her her way to convey uh, vulnerability is kind of the yeah. thing that really defines her acting. Even going back to the really early parts, I mean, um, you go back to her teen roles, like even something like Foxes Are Lady and Gentlemen, uh, the Fabulous Stains, or things where she's not quite front and center. Like she's almost more the sidekick to other more uh, assertive characters, but. I mean, she never comes off like she's acting, and maybe because she was being cast as so close to her own type. I mean, even something like Smooth Talk. Uh, I mean, she's so close to that that age yeah. that uh, she doesn't have to do. It, it looks like she's not doing a lot of acting, but you watch it, and it's like you don't even really see a performance there. You just see you see that that character exactly, um, and that's why I love her so much. Um, yeah. I mean, even in uh, Mask and, you know, like you said, Smooth Talk, there's just something about her presence. Um, And Smooth Talk is probably one of the best movies I've ever seen about sort of like sexual awakening and the confusion it brings and, you know, being an adolescent and sort of, you know, transforming your identity at that time and trying to tackle all these complex emotions that you've never felt before. Um, Yeah, well, she pursued that instead of a Brat Pack movie. I don't know if it was 16... I don't think it was... I don't know if it was one of... I mean, she's never really said, but I know that she said that both that part and Blue Velvet were things that she chose kind of definitively instead of going the John Hughes route at an early age because... I mean, I'm sure she talks about this on WTF and other interviews where she talks about coming from that kind of new Hollywood family environment so that she was attracted to chancier parts. But it's funny, you look at the early career and it's like she's cast as the kind of angelic golden girl in a lot of early parts like Mask and even Blue Velvet, really. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she gets bigger parts as kind of like this perfect... Um, kind of like uh, equal to the guys in the professional sense. Like you get Jurassic Park or you get Perfect World uh, where it's like she just has to show that she can hang with the, with the fellas. But it gets interesting when you get to things like Citizen Ruth where she really starts going for kind of not easy to like kind of characters or like characters that aren't afraid to be annoying in their kind of obsessiveness about things. Um, 
and that that goes into actually a, a lot of the things that I watched in preparation for this. It seems to be like a recurring characteristic in a lot of roles that she went after, especially in Cable. Um, that kind of just, you know, uh, that kind of stubborn, both both enthusiastic, but you know, at, at, like projecting the vulnerability of somebody that is like so clearly excited about it and like so easily hurt when things don't go as they want them to. Um, like I know your favorite is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, when was the last time you watched her in the master? Um, that's a movie I'm planning on revisiting soon. Patrick and I've been talking about this for a while that we're going to do a, uh, a bonus episode where we sort of follow up on the master and now inherent vice back to back. Um, so I'm sort of just waiting for that time to finally come into fruition so I can rewatch the master. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember it's interesting because I remember like, okay, I am so excited that she's in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie when I saw her name in the cast list early on, but she's sort of overshadowed a little bit. I mean, she, she, she is good in the tiny role that she has. Um, well, especially like when she's addressing a whole room, I think at she, one point. Yeah, well, she only essentially has two scenes. And, yeah. I mean, she has the scene where she's addressing the whole room and it's kind of almost like the enlightened character in that it's just, just excited about the process. It's excited about like mm-hmm. God's whole idea. And then the other scene is, the scene where she confronts him on the change to the text, replacing, um, you know, remember your past life with imagine your past life or whatever. And uh, when he blows up at her for challenging him, it's just like you see on her face, the disillusionment creep in. And like, those are the only two scenes that she really has, but it's, they're both pretty, I mean, she really sells the idea in both, in both of them, both like the, perfect candidate for someone to really profess this kind of ideology and then uh how like the hurt on her face when she realizes that it's a sham yeah no that's a that's a really important scene in that movie that's sort of you know it's because joaquin Phoenix isn't in it you sort of um put it on the back burner in your mind a little bit and yet it's a very important to sort of the themes that i think that uh Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to address, and just like the transition from one extreme to another, almost like just um, you know experiencing like all of this optimism towards one thing, and then it's sort of being crushed, and you having to deal with the reality. Um, and I think that she's like I know I listened to her interview uh, uh, with Mark Marin, and she mentions like one of the defining things that has come up at least that i've noticed too but she chooses um characters that are a challenge for her to identify with yeah and i respect that and she says like the process of acting um you know from reading to you know the 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 final day of shooting it's a process of getting for her to get to identify and empathize with complex characters that normally she might dismiss, but that she, she, you know, almost goes out of her way to choose characters like Ruth Stoops or something where she goes, Oh man, kind of a reprehensible person, but how can I get to the core of their humanity somehow? That's probably the film where I really started looking for her versus 
just thinking of her as like a good performer in the hands of you know, David Lynch or Peter Bogdanovich or whoever, like where I really started being attracted to, well, what's Laura Dern in now? Like, yeah. because I think when you see things like Jurassic Park, you know, as a young person, which I was when that came out, it's like you, you focus more on the spectacle, not so much the characters with a film like that. Right. Um, certainly at least I, I did at that age and, you know, rewatching it for this, it's like, you can see that she's, you know, dependable and conveys intelligence and, you know, tries to make that character alive as much as you can, but it's, you know, it's, it's all second place to the dinosaurs as far as like the, what that film has really got to be about. But yeah. Like, it's all about the spectacle. And yeah. it's interesting that someone like Spielberg saw yeah. rambling Rose and was like, Hmm, I really want this actress to be in Jurassic park. And, you know, it's a lot of the times I do think directors, especially like Paul Thomas Anderson, just says, you know what? I love this actor or actress. I want to work with them. And I think this, you know, Rambling Rose sort of ignited that for a lot of um, directors and even an escapist entertainment director like Spielberg. Um, you know, it's just interesting that she follows up Rambling Rose with something like Jurassic Park to just, again, show range, but also, you know, prove that, you know, I can be in a big budget blockbuster too. Like, I think a lot of actresses do that. It's almost like the whole one for them, one for me kind of approach yeah. that directors sometimes have. Well, she And she really does not have that many uh, films like that. I mean, Jurassic Park was the biggest of its type at that time. So to have yeah. just Blue Velvet and Jurassic Park on the same resume was kind of uh, unique. But um, she's somebody that you know, really had to go out of her way to find material that was, you know, appropriately challenging on television. I mean, because she was never an A-list, you know, big star that she could, you know, top line things in the way that uh, like Meg Ryan or uh, Sandra Bullock or Julia Roberts or any like that strata. Um, It seemed like, uh, independent films and cable especially was where she's found most of her uh, best roles. Um, so that when she shows up in something like, uh, what was that thing that she did? Uh, Fault in Our Stars? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I haven't seen that. But... I saw it. And she's she's good. At it, but it's it's the thing is, is that she's, I think when she just appears in things that a lot of people see, uh, she's uh, usually playing perfect people, like, you know, um, Hmm. like very angelic kind. And that's right, the right word, but like not complicated characters, um, the way that she really excels at. Like, you know, the mother in that is like, there's no flaws to that character. She's like a saint. Um, And I didn't see Wild, but is Wild kind of a more complicated character? I know that you saw that. A little bit. I mean, again, Reese Witherspoon is definitely front and center. Right. But, um, you know, the scenes that Laura Dern has with Reese Witherspoon um, are pretty special because she sort of just takes, like, um, you know, um, independent mother role and makes it her own. She gives it that... um, it, It almost felt like, to me, she was trying to convey what probably her mother, Diane Ladd, uh, did for her in those moments of, like, um, having to uh, be more independent and sort of separate from a husband or something just because it wasn't working out. And I can imagine that maybe 
you know, her own mother was the inspiration for her performance in Wild. And, you know, again, it's like it's a very small role. She sort of just shows up momentarily in flashbacks and stuff. Hmm. But it, it's it made a mark. It made an impression enough for her to get an, uh, a nomination. But also I, I was like, OK, there's Laura Dern again, everybody. We need to see her do more roles like this for sure. I mean, we can definitely, um, you know, uh, s- sort of uh, like you like you mentioned with uh, with Jurassic Park or Fault in Our Stars, um, where you know her strengths are not on, on, on display as much as her other work, and something like that that can also apply to like October Sky or I Am Sam. Yeah. Um, they're they're just roles where she's serviceable and she does what she does and she does it well, but it sort of doesn't break out in ways that we've seen her do in other, in other roles. Yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting that she's a producer on a few things like enlightened or, um, even yeah. in, in inland empire, she's credited, but I don't know what that means for something like inland empire. That might just mean that she helped kick in some of the money that David Lynch needed, but like, um, uh, like damaged care was this, um, TV movie that I found and saw that she did where, um, Oh, hmm. it's not, Great. It's like a standard kind of TV melodrama, but it's it's about a woman that is a medical reviewer who finds corruption in the managed care industry, and uh, basically, it's it's a case where like she finds like cost cutting measures leading to deaths that could have been prevented, and becomes like a kind of critic of the system. In a way, it's almost kind of like a foreshadowing to the kind of character she does in Enlightened, where it becomes that kind of yeah she she finds a problem in the system and it becomes. Uh, fixated on like addressing it um it's actually the same with a film called afterburn which i think i think she got an emmy for this um but she becomes fixated on like finding the truth of this uh this kind of fatal plane crash that killed her husband and it gets into like this military cover-up and she's great in it i mean it's like Oh man, you you were able to track that down i couldn't i couldn't find that for some reason yeah, so it's it's hmm. like um you know, I mean, these are, they're like kind of mediocre cable dramas. They're not like anything that is like some secret uh, sleeper success in her resume, but she's great in them. And it's like, you can see that her being drawn to those kind of characters, that it, it kind of leads towards um, enlightenment, maybe being the ultimate kind of uh, performance in that key of hers. Is, but it's it's a it's a much riskier character because enlightened, she uh, she's annoying, uh, you know. At times, like she's she's definitely a hard character to warm up to at first. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but that's what makes it kind of fascinating. Um, I don't know. I I, I wish they had not uh, canceled it before the third season. But I've I've sort of talked about this here and there. But I mean, it's it's important to sort of elaborate too, and what drives me nuts, and that again is like when I'm very aware of an actor and actress is acting instead of simply just believing that this character exists for me to empathize with in the moment. Like I could think of, um, like yeah, like again, like Mystic River. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of showy performances in that, and even something like you know, even someone like Tim Robbins in Mystic River, or. Um, to some extent, Nicole Kidman in the hours where it's just like, I can sense them acting without just being fully immersed into their um, character. Yeah. And, you know, but sometimes even in something like 
August Osage County, it sort of calls for that kind of theatrical, histrionic acting well, uh, that's yeah. very loud and showy. Well, you look at the work she does for David Lynch, and that's always a very stylized universe. Yeah. I mean, like, she brings naturalism to Sandy or to Lula, but it's still, mm-hmm. it's still very much like a, you know, a... Uh, What's the word? I mean, like, Lula is almost like a cartoon character at times. I mean, it's like such a broad performance in places, but then it, it can get into like these incredibly uh, intense, disturbing scenes. I think that actually the scene with her and Defoe in the hotel room <clears throat> is actually more unsettling than anything in Blue Velvet. Uh, yeah, indeed. Indeed. That's uh, that's one of the more memorable moments. Well, there's a lot of memorable moments in, yeah. in Wild at Heart. It's a, it's a movie I don't get excited about revisiting as much. And um, I don't know if it's like – I because there was this barrage of Natural Born Killer type movies, California. Yeah. You know, just like Bonnie and Clyde, only hyper-stylized violent movies. Doom Generation, which we both hate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, I'm just – there's just something about that scenario that's really tiresome for me to go back to, yeah. um, unless it's Bonnie and Clyde, you know. But yeah, or Badlands, or Badlands, exactly. Yeah. But um, you know, she's she's very much um, the antithesis of look at me, I'm acting, and even in something like Wild at Heart, as showy and grandiose and exaggerated things are, there's there's always a moment where she sort of allows her um, vulnerability to breathe into a scene, even if it's immediately sort of, like, undercut by tears or screaming or, you know, something that sort of fits that Lynchian uh, realm. Uh, because, like, you know, she's, there's, you know, after, you know, um, a montage of sex, there's a moment where she recounts what happened to her as a child or when she was younger. Yeah. And again, you, you, you sort of linger on her face as she's telling her story, even though it's flashing back, obviously. But um, I just remember Lynch allowing her sort of um, grace and ability to tap into the humanity of whatever character she's playing. Yeah. He allows that to happen, even in something like Wild at Heart. Well, in Inland Empire is where it really kind of explodes because that becomes kind of like a, uh, almost a kind of, uh, what's the word? Like, it, it's almost like a composite of like all the great Lynch protagonists of the last several <laughs> films because you have elements that recall Laura Palmer. You have elements that recall the Diane Selwyn, Betty character. You have elements that call, recall Lula or even Sailor <laughs> in a way. I mean, the, uh, the Nick Cage character from that, like it has like, because it, it 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 seems to be it's inland empire i mean it's not any big surprise i mean it's 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 all these different kind of characters and situations that don't sit easily together and i've seen it three times now and i i've not I've never tried to piece it all together clearly which is probably why it's less popular than a film that you can explain easily but uh but it's i think it might be her tour de force if i had to pick something i mean she's got a lot of credits i haven't seen so i can't say that i'm an authority but like that that particular film i mean she plays the actress nikki grace who's making a film she plays the kind of southern bell character in the film and then she's also you know this kind of trashy woman that's like you know abuse has led her to you know commit acts of violence and then she's also a 
kind of like a housewife in a barbecue setting. And then she's also like a hooker on Hollywood Boulevard. And it's all these odd scenarios. Uh, and she's always powerful in all of these uh, scenes. It's almost kind of like a, uh, it's not like a gallery of like every kind of part she can play. Cause it's, it's, they're all like, you know, troubled, dark Lynchian kind of characters, but it's, it's kind of a great summing up. I mean, the film itself almost feels like a summing up of everything that makes Lynch him, you know, without any studio, without any network, without any kind of straitjacket or rules. And I mean, it becomes a little bit kind of undisciplined maybe for some taste uh, because of that. It doesn't really cohere the way something like Blue Velvet does, but um, every scene, you know, scene for scene, it's just like these little episodes that are perfect you know, at, you know, conveying what he does as far as mood and uh, what anchors it. A lot of it is, is Laura Dern. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, it's, it's a movie that is so challenging at times that, um, it's, it's, it's probably the biggest, um, disappointment for me anyway, that I haven't, uh, revisited, especially in light of this episode. But I think, um, everything you're saying is accurate. Uh, the the one thing that really stands out for me is not necessarily the the usual surrealism that we've come to know, but the um, the moments where she's confessing her hatred of men yeah. to a psychiatrist. Yeah, um, where it's really just focused on her and then his reaction. Um, that's what that's the most memorable sections for me. Like just where sort of Lynch tones it down and allows Laura Dern to be the best Laura Dern. Yeah, in a way. I think that might have been the scene that the film was built around. I don't even know that the rest of the structure. Like it's. I mean, it's kind of not. Uh, it's it's known about that film that he did not start with a script. He he would write little episodes and filmed them and found that he could piece them together in a way that made sense in his head. And that's, I mean, that's why it has that kind of fragmented, uh, I don't know you would call it a narrative, although it does have a beginning, middle and end, but it is definitely the most experimental film of his, uh, of his body of work. Um, yeah. It's, I wasn't too crazy about the, the digital choice. I mean, again, it's like, it's what I've mentioned when we were talking about Michael Mann. I, yeah. It just it just downgrades it a little bit for me. I mean, obviously with found footage or other, you know, sort of. I just I'm so used to David Lynch's movies being, you know, uh, shot on, shot yeah. on film and gorgeous, and this is just like really ugly with a lot of close ups of people's faces. Yeah. I mean, Dern's face, uh, especially in that film, sort of reflects what it must be like to be in David Lynch's head or his world. It's like she goes through these different expressions of confusion and horror and acceptance and like just these varying degrees. It does. It's a showcase for her. Yeah. That's, that's as absolutely true. Like if anybody is interested in seeing Laura Dern at her best, it is mostly contained in inland empire and just like there's so many there's other performances we'll briefly touch on but yeah god there's there's just something about inland empire and you know her in it Uh, um, among the characters that she plays in that one i forgot to mention is she also plays maybe the most frightening of the many uh lynchian doppelgangers where she plays this figure that kind of is haunting you know, herself essentially, but there's a scene where she kind of emerges from darkness moving toward the camera. It's really creepy. 
and uh, I won't. Um, if you have, you've seen, do you remember the scene at the end in the hallway? I, yeah, I do remember <laughs> jumping. I think. Yeah, it's it's a it's a startling film. I mean, it's one that I I had the same reaction to the digital photography. It looks ugly, and especially following. I mean, Lost Highway was the last one that I thought looked impossibly gorgeous, and then Mulholland Drive. You know, it has the yeah. television the television kind of uh, style to it. It's still attractive looking film. Um, Inland Empire, you got to get used to that. Same with Michael Mann, and it's it's similar in that they were both so kind of synonymous with sleek, perfectly composed images that I think maybe just for their own need to like grow as artists, they had to, to throw it all out and try something else. But uh, yeah, Inland Empire, it's funny that it's the last feature he's made today because it feels like the last film he should make. I mean, I don't know what else... Like, he's been talking about it for, I mean, we don't know, obviously, but he's been talking about making something else and yes. sort of being enigmatic about it. And sure. I I would greatly look forward to it. Um, I met Kimmy but, Roberts from Twin Peaks at a horror film convention maybe a year ago, and she told me that Lynch had a new script that was amazing. But, that, that, okay. but I don't know. That's <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I just remember being at the Q&A for Inland Empire and... Uh, you know, he was there and he was being his weird self. And yep. my friend went up to the microphone and just asked him, what is your favorite animal? And in typical David Lynch retort, he goes, rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That is pretty tremendous. Well, you, it's funny. You mentioned Laura Dern's face and David Lynch. And it's funny. Going back to uh, Blue Velvet, the scene where... She finds out that Kama Glockland's character has been having the affair with Isabella Rossellini. Oh. Her face contorts to this kind of strange, anguished grimace and holds yeah. on it. And when you see that film with an audience, there's a lot of uncomfortable laughter. But it's played ambiguously where it could be for laughs or pathos. And um, Good call. Yeah, I could. It's almost like when we when I saw Force Majeure in a theater and people had varying reactions, reactions from, from laughter, laughter to, to discomfort, discomfort. Um, and like almost not knowing how to respond to uh, a, a situation or a character's sort of uh, behavior. Yeah, and I I do remember thinking early on that that was a weird choice. Yeah, but. It's effective in in its ambiguity, I think. I think, um, you know, she sort of brings that to the table, and I will, you know, happily, you know, go on record as talking a little bit further about um, how I feel about Enlightened and what she does in the pilot really oh, is yeah. what made me go, okay, I'm, I'm sold on this show. I, I mean, I've always been a fan of Mike White's writing, but... Yeah. You know, what she does in that episode alone for just a half hour, you know, by the end I'm so moved to tears. And it's like, if I describe things like, oh, there's this sea turtle and, you know, like like just some of some of like the new agey elements are just like a a choice in, you know, a song to close out the episode. It sort of feels like sentimental and stuff. But um, there are these monologues or moments where she is directly expressing her feelings to a character and it just never feels forced or you don't question it as like, oh, God, you know. But at, at the same time, she is playing 
a character that is very hard to sympathize with at times because she goes to these insane extremes of like being optimistic about, um, you know, self-help and uh, doing good in the world to where it's almost off-putting. And then she, you know, has these fits of rage that are also off-putting. Yeah. But you learn to sort of... Uh, root for her, I guess, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's the neediness of the character that people find kind of a repelling thing, I think, is, is what, with Enlightened, I think that's what makes people uncomfortable, is like they see just how much she needs that kind of reassurance from people, and it makes, it's just an uncomfortable feeling, I think. She's people- constantly seeking validation, yes. I think. Yeah, and that's that's challenging to watch as a viewer, because you more or less want a character that is, um, you want to follow a character that not necessarily is confident the whole way through, but just, um, you know, is is just comfortable with themselves, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you don't, that's like, again, the antithesis with that character. And you're always veering from discomfort to comfort to trying to help to self-destructive. And it's, it's a really, tricky balancing act that that show both in story and character pulls off pretty amazingly and when that's when season two ended and i heard it wasn't being renewed i was pretty bummed really yeah because i wanted to see more where this character goes um and i think like (laughs) me and mark Marin of all people can sort of relate to that tricky balancing act of emotional expression like what is the i think this is even brought up in the pilot but what is really the right amount of sharing you should do <laughs> right, with another person, yeah. whether you're close with them or not? And that's something like I think both myself and Mark Marin have struggled with all of our lives. And so seeing that you know portrayed through Laura Dern on that show is just, oh man, it, it, it just it, I was instantly magnetized to that show and that character um, to where it's like, yeah, I. I wish this character could go on and on and on. And, you know, obviously it probably five seasons is where we could have, you know, ended. We don't know how much further we could have gone, but, um, it's great to see activism portrayed in a very interesting way too. Um, where it shows the ups and downs of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and also for me as a, as director centric kind of viewer, I didn't know going into it that Jonathan Demme and Todd Haynes were some of the directors of. Episodes. Yeah. Right. So my autorist kind of fetish was also <laughs> you know, associated by that uh, by that show. But um, I'm trying to think what I was going to say. Oh, did you ever see the film that she did, The Siege at Ruby Ridge? No, but um, that's one that's been on my list for a while. It's someone, someone uploaded it to YouTube. It wasn't on there before. I had rented it from Netflix. Um, but that's one of her most compelling performances. Um, of the television work, but maybe just in general. Um, hmm. It's uh, about this kind of, um, it's almost kind of like the David Koresh thing, but it's based on a real case that preceded that, but this, uh, the Weaver families face off with the federal government. Um, but it's, it's like this very slow descent into craziness with her because it starts off and she's just very religious and her and Randy Quaid play this couple that, they, you know, at first they're just kind of like off-puttingly Christian in a way that even other Christians find them a little bit too extreme, but then they kind hmm. of cut themselves off from society and become kind of increasingly racist and 
getting into guns and things and like start stockpiling uh, in a way that like will make people that are more familiar with the uh yeah the Waco uh situation that comes later it's it has a lot of uh similarities Parallels? to that okay. yeah um but it's it's definitely not an easy character to sympathize with because she's kind of you know it's not a film that is really uh I, I don't know if that flattering towards Christians, which you can tell from the uh, comments on YouTube. <laughs> if you want to laugh, but the uh, but it's it's a it's a it's a really dark, unusual character. But you can you, you know that their heart's in the right place. They just they just have bad bad ideas. Um, okay, well, yeah, I would definitely check that out. R- Randy Quaid. It's almost a little bit uncomfortable to watch his descent into like this kind of lawless kind of. Kind of wild man, because it feels like it's a <laughs> prelude to his own uh, kind of real life kind of struggles. But uh, <laughs> it, it's it's definitely uh, the, the performance of all the cable things that I found her in that really um, it, it struck me as as maybe the, the great sleeper performance uh, that not a lot of people would know. Um, and it's on YouTube. I mean, it's an you know what is it like a, a CBS miniseries? So it doesn't have the um, Production values of like a feature film, maybe, but it, it's a, you know, it's a TV movie, uh, early '90s. But uh, yeah, it's if if you're a completist about just seeing the essential or Dern performances, that's that's one of the most fascinating ones, along with the uh, the more famous recount uh, performance that she did. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure she might have won Emmys or something for that. Golden Globe, I think. But okay, maybe maybe, Globe, maybe yeah. it was an Emmy. I can't remember. Uh, I should. I should have written it down, but she's, I mean, have you seen that re- recount? Yeah. I, um, I rented it, uh, from the library maybe a year or two ago and obviously she's, uh, stuck out as, you know, doing what she does so well. But I remember her, um, mentioning director Jay Roach, um, like, cause she, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> like a lot of, um, actors in Hollywood. She happens to have very liberal um, stances on everything. Yeah. And having to play a character like that was very challenging. And I think she like made a crack um, like first day of shooting to Jay Roach um, you know, talking about the, oh god, can you believe this character and, you know, what she uh, stood for. And Jay Roach actually got upset with her and said, no, 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 you have to believe what you're, you know, you have to basically become this person and temporarily adopt what sh- what her beliefs are and what yeah. her political uh, ideology is and all that. So I thought she really pulled that off very well in that role. Oh, yeah. She steals the film, I mean, from yeah. everybody else. Um, and, you know, she was the talking point when, you know, the reviews came in for that, too. I mean, I think Roger Ebert was still reviewing at the time and she, he, you know, singled her out as the most, you know... The magnetic thing in that film, but uh, she yeah. does that well. Yeah, and again, it's like another obsessive kind of character, uh, and and you know maybe a naive, frustrating character, annoying, but you know you you kind of understand where she's coming from, and that she does not see herself as the villain. She's not trying to be a bad person. She thinks that she's doing the right thing in everything that she's doing. Um, like like all of the characters, I, I think that she's played except for I mean someone like Citizen, you know, Ruth, Ruth Stoops is just oblivious, but most of her characters think that they're doing the right thing. Oh yeah, um, 
you know, again, sort of touching on it quickly here, a couple of my other favorites. I mean, definitely, I think we touched upon what makes the movie Citizen Kane's or Citizen Kane, <laughs> Citizen right. Ruth, yeah. <laughs> so special um, in our Alexander Payne episode. I mean, obviously, Patrick and I both feel it's a kind of a special piece of social satire. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that um, is due to what Laura Dern does with that role and playing, again, another unsympathetic character and just goes for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's one of the most horrible and frustrated characters she's ever played and has very little redeeming qualities. And, you know, she uses people and steals and punches a child and <laughs> it's the most like, yeah it's the most grotesque character she's done even i think with david lynch's films you know in mind i think that's maybe the most <laughs> the most disturbing character i think she's played as far as like i mean even when you first are introduced to her it's like there's like a certain kind of like ghoulish paleness to her <laughs> oh yeah i mean uh, not attractive at all <laughs> yeah well when she destroys the car it's like a certain kind of like almost feral kind of quality to her um and but again like it, again like it's like blue velvet also like when she uh breaks down you know was that her brother or ex-husband or whatever like at the beginning of the film like, cause she doesn't have any, I think it's money. her brother, it's her brother, but like her, her extreme sadness, it's, it's, it's kind of grotesque and it's played either for laughs or pathos. It's totally ambiguous, you know, as to what right. you're supposed to feel from, that, from that scene. Um, I, I don't know if I realized it until watching them back to back, but Mary Kay place both from smooth talk and citizen Ruth as the, oh, uh, yeah. as like the mother character in the sense right. for her. Very different performances from Dern in those two movies. Yes. Oh, Again, range, right there. Yes. You watch both of those movies, you'll see why Laura Dern happens to be my second favorite actress. And I will definitely quickly say, um, you know, the, the, the first instance of me knowing what the female orgasm is. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. Rambling Rose. Yeah. Um, when you see that at age 11, um, it, it's like, oh, okay. Um, I have something to look forward to. Um, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully it's not, you know, painfully awkward, which obviously it is. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, it's not just that. It's, it's not the fact that, like, Robert Duvall at one point asks her, can you replace your tit? Or whatever he says. He says something like with a southern drawl. Yeah. Um, with this, you know, uh, sort of slang or just, just just these weird choices of phrasing that, um, you know, really uh, um, can be interpreted as like uh, icky or just, um, you know, sweet. Because, again, Robert Duvall in that movie, he doesn't want to cheat on his wife and he's a really sweet character and um, Laura Dern sort of happens to play uh, another complex person that at the same time, she doesn't ask, you know, for pity, uh, with playing Rose, you yeah. know, and asking the audience to feel sorry for her. It just, it just wouldn't work. And you sense a capable, but confused woman who feels a lot of love, but that love often gets misplaced for sexual attraction. And, that is just inevitable with the type of person she is and the kind of confidence that she displays. And 
Um, I think that movie is full of really great moments, including moments with her, you know, real life mother. Um, and like I said, that you never forget that scene when you're, especially at an impressionable age. It's, it's, I think it's the best scene in the film. I haven't seen it. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. I rewatched it for this. I hadn't seen it. Gosh, like, 15 years maybe and uh, it's funny because like I, I look at a film like that and on, on some level it, it feels like a variation on the she's not a, a prostitute in the film at all but like that like hooker with a heart of gold kind of thing where it's like a little the, bit a little bit the, um, yeah. the naive but not, not naive but like you know maybe unaware of like just the, uh, the the effect that she's having on male characters sexually that like um, smooth yeah. talk kind of ties into that and like well the heart even though that character is really sexual I mean there's a certain innocence to that character like these are um, innocent sexy roles I guess yeah she sort of walks that fine line yeah where it's like uh, you know because she's such an innocent you know a more kind of, I don't want to say puritanical, but like a, a more conservative kind of audience won't necessarily think less of her as being a trashy character or whatever. And I, I think that there's like a certain kind of like fuzzy nostalgia kind of thing going on with Rambling Rose too. Yeah, I'm not too crazy shot. about the John Hurd and like, you know, the the sort of intro or the bookends with yeah. narration and all that. I, it, it's a minor film, but you know, you got Robert Duvall and you got yeah, Laura yeah. Dern, and you know, again, sometimes, and I don't know if and Patrick feels this. I don't know. Too. I don't know if Patrick feels this way in general, but all it takes sometimes is for me to um, see who is in the film. That's all there is to it. Like, um, it may not be a great movie, but there's a reason to sit through it, <laughs> um, and. Why not just let it be the actor and actress yeah, um, yeah. at the forefront there? And I will say that, you know, you mentioned, you know, like, yeah, the, the it, it, it veers into Hooker with a Heart of Gold territory at times, but it is better than milk money. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's that goes without saying. But like, and, it, you know, it's funny. It's, it's a lot to look forward to with that movie. It's funny. Rambling Rose is also shot like right around the same area as Blue Velvet, uh, but they don't use any of the same locations. I think I forget <laughs> where where in North Carolina that was shot, like on the outskirts. But uh, I, I had a video store in North Carolina, and both Rambling Rose and Blue Velvet were in my Made in Wilmington section. <laughs> Um, ah, so but wow. they couldn't be more different, even though they're like two key roles in her, you know, teen, I guess was she a teenager still when she'd Rambling Rose? Cause that's, I forget, ah. like if she was like 19 or 20 when she did Wild at Heart and that's, I thought she was 22 when she did Wild at Heart and maybe 1920 for Rambling Rose. You could be right. I, 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 you know, I, I haven't done the math. I know that I listened to an interview with her where she talked about, how old she was for Wild at Heart, and it was just like I was surprised at how young she was for that because <laughs> I, I was younger than her when I saw it, so she seemed like an adult character when I saw it. And yeah, she mentioned it. like that movie yeah. in particular was sort of like her reflecting the, again that sort of tightrope between innocence and owning your sexuality. And for her, like she was also sort of finally becoming comfortable with herself as a woman. And then having to, you know, tackle a character like she does with in Wild at Heart was kind of interesting because it was sort of running parallel in some ways, at least in terms of you know sexuality 
to her real life. And that's what she said on uh, Mark Marin's show. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting timing. And I assume that sort of comes uh, with smooth talk as well. Yeah. Well, smooth talk. I, I mean, I still think of smooth talk as one of the most harrowing films that she's done. Um, and, but it's so ambiguous. I mean, because it's all suggestion. I mean that I was thinking about this, that the, um, oh, that the final minutes. Oh God. Yeah. In a way that story and it's the jo- the Joyce Carol Oates story, um, but like in a way, it's like the same scenario as a any of the kind of post Halloween kind of slasher movies, you know, where it's the girls that are kind of too preoccupied with sex and sexuality to pay attention to looming danger. <laughs> but it's uh, but it's interesting in a yeah. different way. But it's the same kind of thing. And um, I forget if I mean I had read that story a long time ago that who. Um, where are you going? Where have you been? Um, but it, it, I know that Smooth Talk really kind of expands on it. Yeah. yeah. I um, And another interesting parallel, since you brought up sort of the uh, horror movie um, environment that, that that whole scenario sort of can play out in, is um, when Eric Childress came on our show and reviewed uh, Fright Night, the, the remake, mm. with uh, Colin Farrell. He sort of brought up that there's a scene in uh, the the remake of Fright Night where um, Colin Farrell is sort of standing outside on the porch with you know the the um, the screen door mm-hmm. in between them, oh, and he's yeah. trying to get in the house, and that totally reminded him of Smooth Talk. Like he hadn't thought of Smooth Talk in a long, long time, and all of a sudden he sees the Fright Night remake of all things. And he was wondering if the director sort of paid homage to Smooth Talk with that sequence because it was so reflective of what takes place in Smooth Talk. So that's really interesting yeah, like I, to I, frame in that context. I never thought about that because that's the whole cliche about the vampire must be invited in. I never really thought about uh, that Treat Williams character as being like the vampire yeah. in that sequence. But yeah, no, that's – I mean that that whole – I mean – I don't know if that story in particular was like cited as not misogynistic, but like um, like equating budding sexuality with horror and punishment in a way. Like, there's a certain kind of, I mean, there's a certain kind of way to read that in you know that way. I I mean, I never read it that way, but no, I certainly didn't. I mean, it's possible. I mean, well, people people can find what they want in anything tackling sexuality can be spun in a lot of different ways. But I mean, I think the the way that that was read was that you know a, a young girl exploring her sexuality innocently, you know, invites danger unwittingly, and you know, it's a cautionary thing for girls not to dress like Madonna at the mall. Like, <laughs> uh. um, you know, but it's. It's an interesting. I mean, it's it's looking back. There's really not a lot of equivalents to that film in the in the eighties. I mean, as far as no. I mean, you think of that film versus something like Pretty in Pink, and Pretty in Pink seems like such a fairy tale. Um, yeah, it's it's so much further from the John Hughes world of that era. Yeah, um, and that's what I think makes it special. Like I I just saw it for the first time in the last couple years. Oh, and and um. Well, I don't know. It's one of those movies where I might have seen it like on HBO when I was young, and I don't remember for sure. Uh, but 
when I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I know where this is going, and it's really creepy, and it really got under my skin. And even though I'm not a parent, I was sort of, like, reacting that way <laughs> when he's when he's trying to get in, and she's crying, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, like, I'm really feeling for this character and really, like, feeling freaked out for her, but I kind of understand why she does what she does, and that's kind of expected at that time, you know, in your life, I guess, where you just sort of take these insane risks yeah. without uh, thinking of the consequences or how you're going to feel afterwards. Yeah. It's, I, so I had rented that on VHS back a long time ago. I think, was it Vestron put it out maybe? And I didn't know anything about it. Um, I think I might have known that Ebert liked it, but I just got it because it was Laura Dern from, you know, the David Lynch films and coming-of-age films I, I kind of like. So I just didn't even really see the um, the kind of twist in the story coming at all. I mean... Oh, yeah. And uh, it still holds up. I mean, it's... I I don't know much about Joyce Chopra's other films. I think she had done... Did she, like, do documentary work or short subject work? I, I think so, to, yeah. But, she I didn't mean, do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about her career, but I'd like to know more, because that's definitely a compelling film um, still. And, to me. and it sort of still... It, it, does, it definitely starts out, like, I think maybe for, like, the first 40 of my five minutes... I wouldn't say it's, like, Fast Times at Richmond High, but it no. has a lot of girls just sort of hanging out in the mall and, you know becoming more aware of cute guys and ones they want to hook up with or whatever. And there's kind of a playfulness, but there's obviously something looming uh, in the back of your mind. Well, yeah, even and, even when they're at the mall and they're kind of like being just prankish little, you know, teenage girls, it's like they still have that scenario where they encounter the, those two like yeah. kind of stocky guys that want to buy them ice cream in a real kind of <laughs> right. opposing way. And it's just like, like that's maybe the first hint of it. Like there's like a certain kind of detachment from like from the fun. Like you know, it's it's not it's not like the film is going along with it. Like the score doesn't like suggest that it's all fun and games. Like when the threats happen, the threats feel real. Um, if anything, I think that that film probably is harmed by maybe the James Taylor soundtrack for people that would be trying to show it to teenagers now. I think that that. And fashion would make it like very much a product. Hey, of its time. Don't don't be knocking James Taylor. Oh uh, well, I mean, I like him too, Lane Blacktop, but like you know, <laughs> no, well, yeah, but he's he's who I was named after. In case you didn't, oh, know, I did but, not know that. Yeah, well, um, I'm not like the biggest fan of his music, but I can tolerate it. Well, and well, plus, I was, I was you know, I, what I, well, I think I mean, not that it's it's just that like I think <laughs> that for that for that sure, world, I know it what feels like. Um, Something like Madonna would probably be too expensive for the soundtrack, and might be too on the nose. In, in a way that uh, the James Taylor <laughs> like soundtrack... a virgin, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, the, uh, the it almost reminds me more of like the kind of contemporary country music that would be appropriate, like if that film was made twenty years later. Like as far as like that kind of midwestern town, and like it's not hip, like it's just very much. Um, you know, uh, Americana kind of feeling, but uh, I don't know. I, I the short story. I've heard that it was, um, kind of like people aren't sure to read it as literal or as a metaphor or as a dream. Like it's it's yeah. And I don't know if Smooth Talk the film really aims at that. I mean, it's it's definitely plays with the ambiguity, but I don't know if it's meant. 
if you know uh what is that character named arnold friend uh like if he's meant to be like some kind of like symbolic kind of character or just you know a predator i mean because it doesn't play with too many unbelievable elements other than the, and you know it's just bad i mean when he's saying the things about the family being at the picnic or the barbecue or whatever like with such specificity it's like unclear if he's just making that up or how he would know that like the, or if he's a stalker and right you know, it's well the stalking is kind of established because you know the one friend says the guy's been asking about you and she thinks it's that boy that she met out with but it's not and um I mean that's where it gets into horror movie kind of territory, but the uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know either. That's a good point. Like, I mean, is he just like a kind of a symbol for you know impending sexuality? Yes, and yeah. you know confronting it head on, um, and like the excitement that comes with it, but also the the loneliness a little bit afterwards, and you know just the acceptance, the alienation. There's just. When you're a teenager, you're feeling a million things sometimes all at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's one of those movies that manages to capture it both in, like like I said, the excitement and the horror that can come with it. But that's, that's really where you can also see Dern, you know, hitting it out of the park in every way. Like the, the, the final minutes and also just her dealing with trying to keep him out of the house and her crying. And, like, all those scenes are just breathtaking in yeah. every way. Well, even the way that like she handles the scenes where she's like this very kind of, I don't want to say bubble-headed, but like this very carefree, self-involved teenage girl. <laughs> but you see like the, um, the self-esteem getting like knocked bit by bit out of her by her mother's kind of sarcasm and kind of uh, just, you know, constant criticism that uh, I don't know if you remember the scene where she's trying to bond with her, and when uh, Laura Dern's character kind of reacts badly to being hugged because she's uncomfortable with like maybe being treated like a kid. Um, yeah, she kind of pushes away, and so the the mom is just like uh, almost kind of slut shames her in a way, like oh, there's just, I guess it just depends who's hugging you, kind of like making her feel guilty about her sexuality. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, that seems to be uh, like the the mo of parents. I don't know. Like, I mean, they sort of they don't actively say go out and explore your sexuality, have fun. Right. You know, they sort of uh, chastise you a little bit. I mean, not like to the degree that we've seen in movies. At least in my experience with my parents, they weren't like yeah, you know, trying to castrate me. Uh, yeah, or anything. Well, no, well, you don't see the mom as villainous. You see her right. as a caring mom, but you also see how it's it's being taken in by the teenage girl, and like how that's informing all of the kind of increasingly yeah. risky behavior. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. But yeah, no, smooth talk is definitely. Um, I mean, I think we were going to, like, rank our favorite performances, but, I mean, as far as favorite films that she had done, I mean, that's definitely would be on my list for that, for sure. Well, yeah, I think uh, overall we've covered everything I wanted to cover. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think by now people are either sold on checking out more of her work or just being like, eh, maybe I'll get around to it when I get around to it. But I highly encourage everybody to... 
explore the filmography of Laura Dern because there's just a wide array of different things and you get to experience an emotional roller coaster and, you know, not, again, in a histrionic kind of fashion and just, you know, a, a really... She just comes across to me, especially after, you know, hearing uh, her, her WTF interview with Mark Marin. she just comes across as a very likable, selfless individual who acts out of passion and not out of ego. Yeah. So, um, I'll start with my top three here. These are my okay. favorite performances of hers, and I think they're the more obvious ones at this point, since we've uh, I, I, talked I, about them extensively. I'm guessing that we're going to have quite a bit of overlap, but... Uh... <laughs> I would think so. I mean, I think maybe a different order. So... Okay. Number three for me is Inland Empire, and maybe I would feel differently if I finally sit down to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is Smooth Talk, mm. and number one, Citizen Ruth. Okay. Well, we, we have... One. Well, with an asterisk to say that I think her role in Enlightened might be the best thing she's ever done. Okay, because right, I wasn't sure, if, I mean, if we were just talking films or not, if we can include the television work. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Okay, because... Then, then for me, number three is Citizen Ruth, number two is Enlightened, and number one is Inland Empire. Not bad. Not um, bad at all. And I would, I, would, I would give special note to Siege at Ruby Ridge uh, for being an interesting performance. I mean, it's a TV movie. It's not a masterpiece, but it's, it's definitely uh, one of the strongest uh, works that a lot of people would not know. Well, you've convinced me to check that out, and... Uh... I will report back. Yeah, because um, I'm still I'm still going to follow whatever she does, and I don't know. I I'm I'm kind of beside myself. I'm glad we did this episode just for the revelation of you telling me that she's starring in a movie with Michelle Williams, directed by Kelly Reichardt. Yeah, I mean, if I can, <sighs> I can try to find where they're staying if if you need to. <laughs> oh, God, no, then I'm going to cross come across as Treat Williams esque. I don't want to do that. Yeah, stand outside the you know the screen door. Just feel like yeah, doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a podcast. Here's my business card. I have a podcast. Um, do you want to be interviewed for the show at all? You know, I had uh, the director of uh, Buzzard and Faults. So yeah. you yeah. never know. I'm, I'm actually going to watch Faults after this, so I can listen to that episode. I I, I watched uh, Buzzard, and uh, I'm I'm very curious to see the other so that I can listen. Um, it's funny because yeah, I, I really loved faults. Well, it's funny because um, thinking about this episode, I was wondering like I'm so used to talking about films from a director's perspective. I'm sure I you know that bled into this d- discussion, but like uh, I wasn't even sure what to say about acting. Maybe for a little bit, like I was just because uh, I, I just don't really approach films from that direction so often. That I was like thinking like how how do we talk about this? And uh, I don't know if you ever read the magazine Film Comment. But um, there's uh, an, an issue that just came out, um, and it has this essay by Kent Jones, who's a critic I really like. Um, and it mostly covers uh, Marlon Brando in Last Tango in Paris, but it, 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 it oh. talks about the, the trouble of talking about acting in film writing, like film criticism. Um, that's pretty yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I see plenty of essays on directors when I Google, but I just just for the heck of it, and I don't you know I don't do this to plagiarize, but I just do it to sort of um, see what other people have said 
and, you know, if they're good points or not. But every now and then I do like to just Google, um, you know, the director's name essay or analysis and just see what critics have written. You know, even if they're short and sweet, that's great. Um, But if I do that for an actress or an actor, I don't really see a whole lot written. Uh, like, you know, sort of dissecting a career in the same way that we do with uh, directors. Yeah, no, it, it, and it, it talks about why that is tricky. And it, it, it uses Pauline Kael as an example of someone whose film criticism was very heavily focused on the actor or the actress. And even Ooh, cool. sort of made the case that certain directors that she championed were kind of big showboaty kind of directors in a way that kind of might put you in mind of a great performer like an actor, like, you know, someone like Altman or De Palma or uh, um, Bertolucci, you know, the the ones that were more ostentatious in this, in the style. Um, but it's, it's kind of fascinating and it, it does cover, you know, a couple of films and filmmakers that you like as well. I mean, I won't spoil it for you, but if you ever, it's not online yet, but uh <laughs> If you if you get a chance, I mean that issue is it just came out. Um, okay, but it's it's a really good essay. Um, That's a good idea. Yeah, I'd like to idea. read that, and especially uh, in light of us doing an episode on an actor. Like I, I know that in the past there have been a couple of podcasts that have done kind of like oh let's focus on this director, but um, I don't know if actors per se are you know covered in the way that we have for this. Um, I'm sure it exists out there, but I just haven't explored it at all. Well, I think, I think it's easier to identify recurring themes in certain directors because they control the vision. Whereas actors in a way can be seen like hacks because they, they take the work and then uh, what a lot of people, I think auteurists especially tend to think of them as being molded by the director's vision because it's a director's medium. And so they don't maybe give enough credit to the actor. Um, I don't know if you saw the um, Tarantino talking about McCabe, Mrs. Miller uh, yeah, when you're prepping yeah. for the Altman, but like he's making the case for Beatty as, as much the auteur as Altman of that, which is kind of a, that is interesting. It's interesting for a director to make. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, that is because you know he expresses that he's not the biggest Altman fan in the world, and yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a really good point. But and Beatty was someone that like took over the productions increasingly to the point where he eventually became the director of his own films. But I mean, he was someone that would definitely be powerful in a way that someone as laconic as Hal Ashby might not necessarily, you know, control him or. who was the other one? Buck Henry did that Heaven Can Wait to the point where Baby took co-directing credit, I think, on that. Uh, yeah, and I think Edward Norton was sort of following the same path for a little while there. I don't know if he still is at all, but yeah. I know that they were saying, like, oh, yeah, he sort of took over in American History X yes, and Painted yeah. Veil and a couple other things, probably. But yeah. I, I don't know. That's, that's really interesting when that happens, like that sort of crossover. And I mean, certainly, um, you know, there will be directors that we cover that are also actors. Um, So, I mean, that's bound to occur, and I think, um, I mean, I don't know if Patrick will be as enthused about, you know, doing an episode either on his own or with me uh, doing an actor of sorts. I mean, I I just, especially, I just just threw on this movie Twilight, not not the (laughs) vampire movie Twilight. The Alan Rubin film? um, I think it's Robert Benton. Oh, yeah, you're right, it is. And, uh, Watching that, um, I didn't have the same, like, revelation that Patrick did about Robert Redford and all his loss, but I was sort of going, 
I would really like to explore the career of Paul Newman because, you know, he's a renowned actor and I, I haven't seen as many movies of his as I'd like. Yeah. But everything I've seen has sort of been mind-blowing. I cool, will... hand, cool Hand Luke, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, yeah. and even something like Twilight, which is a really kind of eh movie, but yeah. he sells it. He yeah. sells every scene he's in. Yeah, so. I, I think he's an interesting actor. Did you know that he made a comedy written by Terrence Malick? What? He did a film called Pocket Money in the 70s um, that... Warner put it out on DVD. It has a theme song by Carol King, like in her tapestry period. Um, huh. It's I don't know who, I'm trying. To, I haven't seen it in a long time. I forget if it's Lee Marvin. I'm trying to think who the other guy is in it. But it's a uh, this kind of like low key '70s comedy. It's nothing amazing, but um, yeah, Malick wrote like a couple of comedies because he did this other one called The Gravy Train, and they're like nothing like the. Films you think of, you think of Terrence Malick, you think of like you know these kind of poetic kind of well, ethereal and, and kind of things. I, I think it was a, a a breaking movie news story on this podcast when I announced that one of Terrence Malick's favorite movies is Zoolander. I, you know, I'm gonna have to see that again because <laughs> uh, Zoolander. I mean, I liked it, but I saw it way late in the game, and people really. Um, I think some people really went after it in an aggressive way, knocking it after because it came out right after nine eleven, um, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, yeah, was, no, and that's it, true. And it was a big hit because I think a lot of people, I don't, I don't know the exact timing of it, but I know that the spin on it was, you know, Americans are kind of shook up by this kind of tragic event, and they need you know to escape, and here's something that will make no demands on them. It, it's just silly laughs, and I think that. It, it ended up becoming a blockbuster in a way that Ben Stiller's other films were not. Because, you know, yeah, Reality, Reality Bites true. and uh, Cable Guy were both flops. And um, that was his first really big um, directorial success. And uh, even, I think that might be why Wes Anderson got famous in a way. Because <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums, I mean, definitely was marketed like, oh, it's you like Zoolander, here's more Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller. You know? <laughs> right, right. Uh-huh. No, I think... Um, yeah, that's weird. I will never understand Terrence Malick saying that in an interview, and I was like, "Oh my god, I have to announce this to the world because they're not going to believe it." But um, I yeah, Zoolander's fine. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's an American classic. I think it's just fine. Yeah, you know, it has its moments, but I don't think it's consistently funny. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, Bill, this was great. I I'm looking forward to doing this sporadically throughout the year, hopefully. Um, and if obviously if Patrick wants to go off and do something too, and that's kind of what these bonus episodes have been for the most part is us sort of just taking these little detours and hopefully they work out. And I think this was a success. We managed to talk for two hours about acting, yes, which I, I didn't think I was nervous too. Yeah. I was like, are, how are we going to, you know, sort of talk about, um, you know, a performer in the same way we do with a director, but, um, there, you know, there's a reason why. Yeah, no, I, I I think it's a success also. I'm, I, it's funny, at some point I'll have to be on an episode with both you and Patrick that actually makes it out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Hopefully one of these days that will happen. But yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we'll be back with our regular show soon enough with uh, the episode on John Houston. Um, and visit us at Directors Club Podcast. Dot com. Send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, you can find me at Twitter and Letterboxd um, at Instant Jim. 
And Bill, where can we uh, read more of your work? Um, you can find me at autouristtrap.blogspot.com. Um, that's a u t e u r i s t t r a p dot blogspot dot com. Um, really need to update that soon. Um, I also have been contributing to a zine called Lunch Meat that uh, has a new issue coming out in a few months. Uh, mostly deals with uh, cult and horror uh, films that have only come out on VHS, but it's a really fun little zine. It's a print zine. Um, they still make them. <laughs> Um, so those, uh, those are places that I write. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we'll be back soon enough for our traditional episode with Patrick. And as always, I am Jim saying, I love you, Patrick. Love me tender. Love me sweet. Can you replace your tit? She's doing a film with Laura Dern, uh, with uh, Kelly Reichard. <laughs> ah! Oh my god! Yeah, I think it's in production now. I can't handle that. I, oh, I'm yeah. going to pass out. <laughs> Can you replace your tit? <laughs>